I mean, why? why? From the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, you're listening to Veritalk. Veritalk. Your window into the minds of PhDs at Harvard University. I was curious. I've always wondered. Why is... Where did how it, did we get... Why? 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 I'm Anna Fisher-Pinkert. For the next few episodes, we're exploring the secret life of cities. We're going to start with Justin Stern, a six-year PhD student in architecture, landscape architecture, and urban planning, which is offered through the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and the Graduate School of Design here at Harvard. I'm a dual citizen in many ways. A few years ago, Justin had finished up a master's thesis on housing in South Korea, and he thought, okay, let's try something new. So he flew to the Philippines, landed in Manila, and was really excited to get out and explore the city, just as soon as he got over his jet lag. I was so jet lagged, I was exhausted, so I went to bed straight away, which is so often the case when you're traveling literally to the other side of the world from Boston. And I woke up the next morning at about 2 a.m. And I looked out my window and there seemed to be a lot of activity happening outside. And so rather than just kind of lie in bed and check emails and count sheep and try to fall back asleep, I decided to go out for a walk. And I walk outside the hotel and the neighborhood where I was staying, it was more vibrant than when I had checked into the hotel at five or six in the afternoon. And so I'm walking around, there. there's a traffic jam at three in the morning. There are people lined up outside of Starbucks drinking coffee. And I really had no idea what was happening at first uh, until I went up to a group of people. They were eating outside and I I just asked them, uh, excuse me, but why are so many people out eating dinner at two or three in the morning? I said to this group of people, they they looked like kind of working professionals and they they all laugh at me and they say, we're not eating dinner, we're eating lunch. Justin thought, lunch? But they said, We work on American time. We're on our lunch break, and that's our office. And they, they just pointed up to, to a building that at the top had the logo for Dell Computers. And then I start looking around this district at the top of all the buildings, and you see Citibank, Convergys, and a handful of other familiar corporations. And it kind of just suddenly hit me that this is an outsourcing district and that all of these people work in call centers. It turns out that Justin had accidentally wandered into the heart of Eastwood City, a district inside Manila that looks completely different than the rest of the city. So you know when you call Citibank to get help with your credit card? The person who answers the phone could very well be sitting at a desk in Eastwood City. To understand what this district of Manila is all about, you have to know about this term BPO, or Business Process Outsourcing, which is a fancy way to say... Business functions that were traditionally or, or previously kind of done uh, in the United States or, or even within like a corporate headquarters that have since been sent elsewhere in the world or in the United States. One example of business process outsourcing is customer service call centers. Hello. Thank you for calling Bank of America. Uh, Bank of America, for example, most likely had its customer service call centers inside the corporate headquarters. One of our representatives will take your call as soon as possible. And then eventually there's this kind of first wave of outsourcing where these subsidiary offices that don't necessarily need to be within the corporate headquarters are moved elsewhere, often where labor is cheaper, where accents are neutral, where they can reduce costs. Thanks for holding. Our representative will be with you soon. 
So the first wave of outsourcing, you have call centers moving to places like Minnesota. We are experiencing high call volumes. Eventually, these call centers moved abroad to places where labor was even cheaper, like India and the Philippines. But why are there so many call centers in the Philippines? So there are a lot of different ways to answer that. The most important explanation is that a significant number of people in the Philippines speak English. That's partially because the Philippines is a former American colony. And that's also because over the last few presidential administrations, there's been a serious attempt to teach English in elementary school. And so English is a fairly common language, not just in schools, but also just in daily life in the Philippines. But the larger explanation also has to involve India. India is the original global hub for the outsourcing industry, a significant number of call centers located in India. Uh, the Philippines sort of was discovered a little bit later as a really ideal place to outsource voice BPO. The BPO industry as a whole is actually really important to the economy of the Philippines. It's the fastest growing industry in the Philippines, and it's the second largest contributor to GDP, $23 billion annually, after remittances from overseas Filipino workers. So the largest contributor to GDP is actually from Filipino workers who are living abroad and sending money back to their families. But the BPO industry is growing, and it's expected to overtake remittances from abroad in the next few years. These call centers really shape the cities that they're in, in the Philippines, the call centers are built in special economic zones. Right. So it's a special economic zone, but it's a particular type of special economic zone known as an IT center. In India, a special economic zone is generally far outside of the city center and really only accessible to the people who work there. But what happens in the Philippines is that, you know, a single floor of a building can be a special economic zone. It can be this IT center, and the floors above it and below it can be a part of the normal economy. And so this creates an opportunity for more diversified building stock and an opportunity to have significant amounts of retail on the ground floor, for example, to have residential adjacent to it. And so really it's creating these new mixed-use urban environments that are quite spectacular and quite ambitious in their size and scale. And that's what Eastwood City is. So Eastwood City is one of the, well, it's actually the first large IT center that is primarily anchored by the BPO industry and in particular by customer service call centers. The inspiration kind of draws from Los Angeles and Barcelona, I'd say. There are palm trees. Across the bottom two floors, you have bars and restaurants. You have high-end shops like Uniqlo and Gap, which are high-end shops in the Philippines. There are fountains and sculptures surrounded by neatly paved paths and landscaping. And then you have call centers sort of towering above. Zoom out and Eastwood City looks really strange, like a weird urban thumb sticking out of a regular neighborhood in Manila. Outside, you have sort of average-sized, two- or three-story buildings. Inside the IT center, there are these massive modern towers. Outside Eastwood City, you can visit a street vendor and buy green mango skewers smothered in shrimp paste. Inside Eastwood City, you can go to Applebee's and order a burger. Outside Eastwood City, the streets are full of jeepneys, these colorful trucks that take people to and from work. Inside Eastwood City, you'll only see taxis and sedans. 
there are only three real access points into this mega project, whether you're on foot or in a car. The site has secured its police. There are walls that surround it. And so it's kind of, in many ways, this own universe into, uh, unto itself. That universe is pretty inaccessible to most people, even for call center workers who are, by and large, considered part of the middle class. If you're a call center agent, you're making between 250 maximum 500 U.S. dollars a month. Uh, and that generally wouldn't be enough to afford housing in one of these kind of call center or new business districts. So generally, people who work in this industry um, do one of two things. One, they live at home, in which case they have a significant commute where they're taking a variety of different transportation types, say a jeepney to a bus to a train or some variation of that. And commute between three and four hours every single day. The other option is to live in shared dormitories closer to work. But perhaps the biggest thing that separates Eastwood City workers from the rest of the city is time. So the most common work shift is from nine at night to six in the morning. And that's just because there's a 12-hour time difference between Eastern Standard Time in the United States and local time in the Philippines. So when I place a customer service call at three in the afternoon, a representative is picking up in Manila at four in the morning. And that has consequences for people who work in businesses around the call centers. I'll never forget the the first day I visited and I was walking around Eastwood City, I saw an advertisement for Applebee's that advertised not one but two happy hours. There was a happy hour at 7 at night and there was another happy hour at 6 a.m. And this is when I was still kind of putting the pieces together and trying to figure out this industry. And it wasn't until I actually started walking around the city at 5 or 6 in the morning that naturally I understood that if you work from 9 at night to 6 in the morning or 5 in the morning, that when you get off of work at 5 in the morning, you've had a long, busy day, you want to go out for a drink with your friends. Um, And so there's a sort of scrambling of time uh, that happens. And in many of these districts, it's not uncommon at all to see people out drinking with their friends, um, eating, you know, what we would typically eat at a bar like buffalo wings at, at 5 or 6 in the morning. But then that also means that there's a bartender who's employed at 5 or 6 in the morning, and a janitor, and a security officer. In Metro Manila, 800,000 people work in the BPO industry, most of them in customer service call centers. Plus, there are all those people with jobs that support the BPO industry. And that's inside a metropolitan area of over 30 million people. It's like there are two cities, a daytime Manila and a nighttime Manila. So on one of Justin's visits, he decided to try the overnight shift, this time on purpose. And I spent the entire time on American time. So while I was there, I would uh, go to bed around 11 in the morning and I would wake up every single day at 6 p.m. I was there over Christmas and, um, you know, the Philippines is 50 percent Catholic. They take uh, Christmas very seriously. I was out Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, asking people about about the industry that they work in, asking them how they how it felt to be working on Christmas Eve and how they would be celebrating with their family. And oftentimes they would have a brother or a sister or at least a cousin who also works in the industry, who also works at night. Um, And their families would begin to change when they celebrate holidays so that everybody can participate. If a huge group of people in your city started working the overnight shift, how would that change the community that you live in? What would happen to childcare, to your local coffee shop, to traffic, to dating? And then, what if those night shift jobs disappeared? 
you can't help but speculate on where is this all going and what will this industry be like in 20 or 25 years. Many analysts suggest that in just the next few years, employment in the industry will begin to plateau as advancements in AI and artificial intelligence and voice automated technology begin to replace a lot of jobs in the call center industry. And so what does that mean for the city? What does that mean for office space? What does that mean for the over 1 million people who are employed in this industry? Um, Raises just a lot of really alarming questions. As an urban planner, Justin is also thinking about what this means for the built environment in places like Eastwood City. The buildings where the call centers are housed are specifically built to suit the BPO industry. There are a number of technical requirements, but really the most important requirement is a very large floor plate on which hundreds, if not over a thousand employees can be assembled. And one of the main reasons for this is that if you can assemble a thousand call center agents on a single floor, maybe, then you would only need one manager. But if the BPO industry dries up, it isn't clear what all of those giant empty floors would be used for. Particularly about a decade ago, when the industry was just growing and the real estate development community was figuring out how to meet its requirements, they sort of blew up the typical floor plate. Say there'd be one bathroom in one corner of the site or something like that, and these floor plates would be very difficult to partition. And if you can't partition it, there are very few users of office space that would require such a large floor plate. So it raises this larger question about the sustainability of the kind of urban planning and the kind of real estate development that this industry has generated. This is nothing new. This is a symptom of capitalism. There are booms and there are busts. But when you think about, say, New York City, my dissertation advisor lives in a loft in Soho. I wish I could afford a place like that, uh, which used to be a part of like the meatpacking district, which then was like an art loft and now is a loft where he lives in, an overpriced condominium in New York. When you look at the kind of spaces that this industry is now generating in the Philippines, it becomes much more difficult to imagine other uses that it would easily kind of uh, lend itself to. When you talk about the meatpacking district, I'm guessing that the the meatpackers in Soho didn't imagine that it would be a loft either. So it sort of seems like whatever is coming next is going to have to be really radically different than what we're seeing now in these urban environments. Right. Uh, In the Philippines, a lot of people talk about climbing up the value chain. They talk about back office accounting, human resources, certain aspects of the industry uh, that can't be automated or would be more difficult to automate. But whether or not those aspects of the production cycle are located in the Philippines is anyone's guess. And the other thing, you know, that's really quite different about the age that we're living in today is just that the typical lifespan of a given industry, so say the outsourcing industry, appears to be significantly shorter than comparable industries in the past. So if you think about the automobile industry in Detroit, Detroit had many, many decades. There was an entire culture, a culture of civic philanthropy that kind of was cultivated through the expansion of that industry. Um, Whereas in the Philippines, this industry has really only been around for the last two decades, and it's only been a really significant player for about the last decade and a half or so. So there's also this larger question of just these industries that are appearing changing faster than in the past. So who gets to decide a city's future? 
The decisions that were made in the Philippines, first to push the English language, then to allow special IT zones inside major cities, those had far-reaching consequences. Next time on Veritalk, we're going to ask who gets a say in your city's future and why. Potholes not only tell you about the state of your infrastructure, they also tell you about the nature of participation in your city. And that, to me, is really fascinating. Next time on Veritalk, what can we learn from potholes? Don't forget to subscribe to Veritalk on your favorite podcast app. Make your friends subscribe. Make your mom subscribe. We love new listeners. If you want to hear more from Justin Stern, there's a really great video of him talking about Eastwood City at Harvard Horizons, which is this cool event where PhD students share their research with the public. You can find that video along with more episodes of Veritalk at gsas.harvard.edu slash Veritalk. And there's another cool story about changing cities over on the podcast This Week in Health from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I spoke to Augusta Williams about cities, heat, and climate change. You can visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to listen to that episode. Veritalk is produced by me, Anna Fisher-Pinkert. Our sound designer is Ian Koss. Our logo is by Emily Kroll. Our executive producer is Anne Hall. Special thanks this week to Justin Stern, the Harvard Graduate School of Design, Ann Brown, and Graham Ball. The sound we heard from Manila was recorded by Kevin Luce, whose work you can find at freesound.org. 